hey, my name is Sean Peters. I'm the cinematographer for The Last Days of Ptolemy Gray, and this is The Go Creative Show. Hello and welcome to The Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today we speak with Sean Peters, cinematographer for The Last Days of Ptolemy Gray. Uh, Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. There is a ton to talk about, not only The Last Gaze of uh, Ptolemy Gray on Apple TV+, Plus, but Summer of Soul winner, Academy Award winner right now. So I cannot wait to dive into all of that, and that'll be the first thing we discuss. But before we get there, I want to quickly mention, of course, follow us on your favorite podcast app, as well as Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. So, Sean, congratulations are in order. What an experience that must have been to be part of a now Academy Award winning film. Like that, that is insane. That's amazing. Yeah. What was the experience like? It was great. I mean, uh, Joseph Patel, one of the producers, reached out to me initially, and then he put a, a call together between myself and um, Questlove, Amir. Um, and, uh, you know, we were just talking. I had seen some of the footage, like there were sprinkles of that concert footage on the internet of like Nina Simone's performance, like a little bit of it, a bit of Sly Stone's performance. And I was always curious, like, what is this? That, that iconic kind of colorful background you would see. Yeah. And I knew it was in Harlem, but I didn't know any of the context. Um, and so when he when he told me that, there, and then I think right before they did the documentary, there was a, a New York Times article. And they were calling it the Black Woodstock or something like that in the article. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, that's interesting. And so he called me. And, and, and just I, to bring people up to speed, the film is called Summer of Soul. Just give us mm -hmm. a little background on what it is for those that may not know. Well, Summer of Soul um, was a concert series. It was based on a concert series that was put on in uh, Mount Morris Park, which is now um, Marcus Garvey Park. I believe that Marcus Garvey Park in Harlem. And um, in the 70s. You know, I think it was like 1969 or something, right before, uh, like soon after the, Dr. King was assassinated um, in the 60s. And like, I think at, at the time, the, the man, uh, first man landed on the moon. And then Woodstock was like somewhat right before it. And this was, a, you know, in Harlem, it was a black event, primarily, you know, uh, primarily black audience, um, primarily uh, black uh, African-American performers. Um, so at the time, it didn't get the same sort of buzz in the media as Woodstock did, but it was an incredible uh, concert concert experience. Kind of put on. I can't remember the man the man's name, but put it on. But it was um, uh, something that was his brainchild, and he brought it to the community. And it, those kind of acts, you know, Sly and the Family Stone, Nina Simone. Uh, I mean, Roberta. And, uh, was it Roberta Flack? Roberta Flack was no, not Roberta Flack. Um, uh, and the Pips. Who is oh, that? Gladys Knight. Gladys Knight. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Gladys Knight, those kind of acts, the Temptations, you know, they wouldn't come to Harlem for free, you know, ever, you know. So, you know, to have to see these kind of these families be able to come out um, in the community and see all those beautiful, that beautiful sea of people. And I think the crowd footage is even more interesting to me. Well, you I mean, you worked primarily with the footage of the event and sort of historical yeah. footage and all of that. So mm. I get what, what is the role of a director of photography of a cinematographer in a documentary where so much of the footage is, has already, you know, has already happened. You're taking old footage of this event. Like what is your role kind of incorporating that into the new interviews that you're doing? Well, I think the, well, the, the main word that kept coming up in our meetings was empathy, you know, and was like, how do you, you know, how do you create, um, how do you get into the soul, into the eyes of these people and create empathy and, and sort of, you know, almost you want this, the skin and the eyes to create this sort of visceral response for the audience. You want people to feel very human, um, vulnerable. They're surprised when they see the footage for the first time. And so, you know, my goal was, you know, you know, color palette and things like that. Things were, you know, I made a lot of decisions based on like what the color palette was going to be what the tonality was going to be for the interviews. I want it to feel very um, like they were in their living room to a certain extent. Mm. Um, and and then, you know, thinking about, you know, going very warm on the skin tones, which in which in sort of recent 
times in terms of African-American skin tones and darker skin tones, a lot of DPs are going, been going cooler. And I've been sort of, I've been sort of making a different departure because I, I just, in my memory, I grew up, I'm in, you know, I grew up mostly in the eighties, you know, but, um, in New York city, uh, in New York and New York city in the suburbs. Um, but, um, I remember like sodium vapor lamps, you know, mm. mostly on at night on black skin. I grew up in a black neighborhood and, um, you know, just thinking about my mom and her skin in tungsten light and in daylight. So really, I really just trying to think about how, you know, it seems very simple that they're just talking heads, you know, but the, the lens choices, the lighting choices, the color palette, all that thing, all that was well thought out to, to make sure that people were emotionally connected to the people telling the story about the concert. So that's really the goal. It's just to bridge that the bridge, the footage, the emotion, the emotions of the footage with the people that experienced it. Are you involved at all in the acquisition or sort of refinement coloring of the original footage? Were you involved? Uh, no, in, I wasn't. In, unfortunately, I think I think what I, what we shot informed it, though. Yeah. Yeah, I think what we shot informed. It. I didn't because I did work with the colorist, you know, but we I didn't talk to him specifically about the footage. But I think. The producers were like, you know, let's follow the lead, color-wise, from what we from the interviews. Once we called those, I didn't remember. Yeah, I, I, I can imagine. Like, have you done a ton of documentary work prior to this? I don't do a lot. I mean, I've done some. I don't do a lot of documentary work, honestly. For for lack of interest, like you, you're just not interested in documentary work, or it's just um, something you just doesn't come your way that often. I think it's a couple of things. I think it comes my way often. It's just. Documentaries are hard to commit to financially. Honestly, if you want to keep it really honest, it's a yeah. longer, usually a longer tail project. Even in this project, I couldn't shoot all the interviews. I had to set the look. And then when times when I was shooting commercials or other, I was actually on Ptolemy Gray and they were shooting on um, some of the later interviews. Oh, um, okay. The template that I created, you know? So a lot of times when you're a, sort of a busy cinematographer, it's difficult to commit um, to documentaries on the scale that, you know, the time commitment and then the pay scale that doc, docs usually usually pay is difficult, you know? Is that, really is that usually is the case with any sort of documentary, even at, even at high level, that the budgets are just not necessarily there? Usually. I mean, if it's, I guess if it's a super high level, I've never experienced um, a super high level documentary where I would pay a similar scale to what you'd make on a series or on a, you know, definitely not on a commercial, obviously, but yeah. Even like on a, a series like Ptolemy Gray, it's very difficult to find that kind of pay scale, you know? And yeah. so it's difficult to stick around when, if you're, I mean, I, I, I'm lucky in my career where I'm, my, I'm very balanced in terms of my commercial work and my narrative work, you know, which I don't know if that's rare or not, but I've heard it's rare, you know? And so, you know, the good thing is that when you do commercial work and you work in commercials a lot, um, because the paying commercials is very high, you can make narrative choices, you know, that not, might necessarily pay as much sometimes, you know, but in some cases you get taken away, you know? Yeah. And I've heard that quite a bit from other DPs and cinematographers. Like the commercial is like the, and music videos even more so, mm -hmm. is like the playground to to mm -hmm. express ideas, try different things. And then, you know, some of those experiences get brought into a series or a movie. Um, mm -hmm. You can have a little bit more creative freedom. Not, I don't even know if it's creative freedom, but you can ex you can play with some more different ideas in commercials and music videos that you may not necessarily get to in a series, in a film. Do you feel the same way? Does Is it kind of like a, almost like a palate cleanser for you? I mean, music videos for sure. Yeah. I mean, commercials, you are dealing with clients. A lot of times, even though I don't deal with the client directly, that's the director's job. You know, the client, it's, you know, you got a whole agency. Sometimes you have the client, which is the product. And then you have, well, most times you have the product person there. Then you have the agency there. And it's like, you know, 18, you know, it's eight people in the monitor, you know. So you're not, so, you know, you definitely do, you know, depending on the director and how much, how powerful the director is, you do get to play a lot. But you still have to respect that there's a client there, you know. Whereas a music video, you get a lot a lot more freedom because they usually hire the director for to be as wildly expressive as possible. And that's, that's nice, but no client, you know, but the, the musician, the label, you know, Oh, that's gotta be so fun. 
I love music videos. I love the format. And we 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 cover a lot of we brought on some people that are more sort of geared to the music video world. But I don't know. It just it seems like such a fun thing to do. It's just so expressive and interesting. You can try new things. So mm-hmm. I love that. And um, bigger budgets are coming back too. Coming back for, since COVID, you mean, or just in general? Yeah, since COVID, since sort of this has been a way for musicians to do bigger concept music videos because of touring. I think I, I think I'm not sure where it's going to go, but when touring was at a lull because of COVID, they were expressing themselves and and presenting themselves in other ways, and so the music video budget's definitely increased for sure. That's a good point because if the revenue isn't guaranteed in touring then it's harder to put the money into a music video. I didn't even think of that, but that, yeah, that, that totally makes sense. Cause we, who knew when people are going to get back on the road, yeah. you know, in the throes of COVID, it's like, is it going to be six months? It's going to be 20 years. You just, you, yeah. you didn't know. Nobody knew. Yeah. So they were, they were definitely expressing themselves visually. I love that. Yeah. Now yeah. you'll have to indulge me for just a moment. And you are not the only person that I asked this question to because we had the DP of CODA on the the follow like right following the Oscars. Mm-hmm. You, I am I right that that your film was the next like wasn't the award Once. for your film to the the next one presented <laughs> after the Will Smith uh, that was the Chris award Rock. That he, that's the word that Chris Rock. That's the award that Chris Rock was presenting. Was presenting not to present. <laughs> I mean, of all times. <laughs> like, I felt bad for jo- for Joseph and and Amir in that moment because it definitely deflated in a way their moment. Um, but they also won a Grammy too for best doc- best music documentary. Oh wow, which is nice. It's, I mean, what what are you thinking? First of all, were you there? Were you at the ceremony? I was. I was working, man. I'm on another series right now. Oh wow. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, so you missed the excitement of, <laughs> of everything in that moment, but I kind of feel like, but I mean, the film was already popular and people knew about it, but I kind mm-hmm. of feel like some additional attention has been brought onto it because of everything that happened right before it. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you, do you feel that that sort of added some light to the film by mm-hmm. having such a crazy moment I'm sure happen right have. before? I think because there's been like a lot of articles and think pieces around around it, you know, possibly. I, I don't pay attention that much, to be honest with you. But um, I cannot, I have seen a few articles and I've seen a lot of debates online about it. And so I'm sure, I'm sure people would have would have never seen it and have seen it now. It's so crazy. The debates online. What's there to debate? We all saw it. It is what it is. What are you going to do? But people are stretching content out of it. I just did, so I can't make anybody, <laughs> I can't fault anybody. All right, let's talk about Solomy mm-hmm. Greg. Yes. Um, the the show is awesome. It looks, it, it just is so gorgeously shot. It's beautiful. And talk about warm tones. I mean, this show is like just so rich in its warm tones. I absolutely love just the general look of it. Mm-hmm. So let's start by just a little synopsis. Let's get people up to speed with what the what the series is about. Mm-hmm. And then I want to dive right into kind of the look, how the look was established. Um, but first, let's just give us a little background on what the series is about. So the series is about um, a 92, let's say 90-odd old man named Ptolemy Gray who suffers tremendous uh, dementia. Um, and he's a recluse primarily and only pretty much communicates with, um, in the beginning, his nephew, uh, Reggie, who takes care of him, makes sure he, that he eats and makes sure that he goes to his doctor appointments, makes sure that he goes to the banks to deposit his social security checks. So, you know, you sort of enter the world originally with this extremely dysfunctional um, life, you know, and um, as the series goes, I'm not sure if I want to spoil it, but another person at one of the, his Reggie, something happens to Reggie and then another person enters his life and then the course of his life changes from there to become a lot, to have a lot more hope, um, definitely less dysfunction, uh, less dysfunctional. Um, and, you know, so it's a kind of a progressive story around a man who you know, has this dementia probably spurred on by a lot of guilt and regret um, and sort of and being sort of unactualized in many ways um, to himself. 
You yeah, know? and it's not. It, I don't think it's really a spoiler because a lot happens in the very first episode. But mm-hmm. the, he goes through a procedure where he now is able to remember. He's sort of like going back through his memories. He's now mm-hmm. able to remember vividly mm-hmm. moments from his past. So he's very mm-hmm. much like reliving his life, um, mm-hmm. and that is just such a great concept. First of all, and mm-hmm. also provides a lot of opportunity for you as a cinematographer to mm-hmm. play with reality, memories, different mm-hmm. time periods. Like there's so much to explore in this mm-hmm. series. So let's start at kind of the beginning. I mean, how, uh, what went into the development of the look of this series? And I guess, how would you describe the look of Ptolemy Gray? Well, you know, it's, it, it progresses. You know, one of the things that we really wanted to do was go from one place to another. If you notice, episode one is a lot grittier, a lot darker, it's a mm-hmm. lot bluer. It's a lot colder. Um, you know, one of the discussions I had with my gaffer, um, Justin Dixon of Los Angeles, um, was that we really didn't want to. Um, so the whole his apartment's obviously a set, you know. Yeah. So and we wanted to make one the the light coming into the room very believable and feel seasonal and overcast in that first episode. Um, and then, you know, we want to see sort of the light move a little bit. You know, sometimes you'll see the light sort of travel across the room a tiny bit, sub, you know, subconsciously. Um, but we didn't want, we wanted to be, feel bleak. We wanted people to watch that episode and then be like, almost like it stank. Mm. You know, so it was like anti-beauty almost in a way. We didn't, we didn't want it to feel aesthetically really beautiful. You know, so there weren't a lot of warm tones and, and things like that. And, um some of the references with the first director, Ramin Barani. Uh, so, Ram, so, so the way it worked out was Ramin hired me as the DP for the series. Um, we decided that we, you know, so we, we couldn't, I couldn't shoot all the episodes because we had multiple directors. Some of those directors were hired last minute, honestly. Mm. And, um, and so I was able to start, you know, maybe three, a, a long before we got started and I brought my gaffer and my key grip on early because it was so much stage work and I wanted to design the look with them. So that process with sort of Brahmin and myself um, during prep was obviously the, you know, location scouting and all the things that you do in, in, um, in prep and working with the production designer on color palettes and the costume designer on color palettes. But our specific work was going to his apartment in Atlanta where we shot and watching references. We didn't talk about, we didn't shot list anything um, until we went through a bunch of, Film references, and one of our one of our big references was at Eternity's Gate. Um, Eternity's Gate. I'm gonna pull it up as we're talking, so I can. So I can check yeah, it out. that's the it's the film about um, uh, the the painter. Um, now it makes me forget it. Oh yeah yeah yeah. Yes, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, and we'll put a link to everything we talk mm-hmm. about in the show notes. Guys, Eternity's Gate was a big one. The way they kind of used the way they kind of used sort of the blurred image for his. When he was go go through mental breaks, was a huge, was a big influence. Mm. Um, the, my gaffer and I, and my my key grip John Day, uh, would watch film as well during prep. And one of the our biggest references was was Seven, you know, Darius mm. Conti, for that very for that first episode especially, you know. So we were just because you're establishing, about- like, you're kind of the audience is learning that he very quickly that he has really advanced severe dementia. So mm-hmm. you are kind of like, that, that's something I wanted to discuss with you too, is the idea of how do you show in the cinematography, the, how do you show dementia? How do you show that there's a problem with uh, the character's mind and confusion and all of those things? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think you did it beautifully in the series, um, particularly in that intro in the first episode, but like, what were some of the techniques that were used to create that sense of confusion in the well, we use a lot of we use a lot of um, in camera optics mm-hmm. you know so there were well first of all there were I used um, my cam- my lens vendor or my lens the company I used was Camtech out of Los Angeles mm-hmm. and Camtech is really great and they're known for customizing lenses um, so you so whatever so my particular lenses that I use I used a set of Camtech Falcons which were are rehoused um, Canon FD lenses, which also uh, would they, they put their custom uh, lens coating on. And then I used uh, a 
a set of Takina uh, vistas that I had detuned. So, and they also used, they have this very specific, very rare lens. It's an Anginue, it's an old surveillance lens that's a 0.9 on the aperture. It's super shallow, like the most shallow lens yeah. possible. Um, and it's, a, it's made for large formats because we shot on the, uh, the RELF and the LF minis. Um, but this lens gives a fall off that you won't really see in other lenses, you know, because of the, the aperture. And so, and then we use a lot of split diopters and, and, um, and diopters. And then we also used broken glass. And then we used, uh, actually used the bottom of, I had the props department cut the bottom of a Martinelli's, uh, apple, apple juice glass, uh, bottle. No way. Yeah, so that was used at times as well. Well, and what what did that do? The bo- the bottle so of the, apple the bo- juice. So I'm not sure if you remember the first episode when he looks through the keyhole. Yes. That's the bottle. That's the cap on. That's the bottle on the on the front of the lens of a wide angle lens. No way. That gives that effect. Yeah. And it was just through experimentation, and we we're like, oh, this is perfect. It looks exactly like a dirty keyhole, <laughs> you know. And um, and so. Um, so those are the things we thought about, but, but, you know, Ramin is really big on, um, sort of rules, you know, and also like language, you know, so everything you saw, there's like a lot of wide and close things in the first episode that are handheld, you know, that kind of run into him and it's, it looks this way and it's like, he's yeah. wide and close and it's like a push in on the handheld. It really just like sort of sparks the viewer. It's like, oh, he heard something, you know, and he's like, huh? And he looks over and then you see, a, maybe see a flashback, but we used, we just, and then, and then the aesthetic of it all, you know, we forced ourselves not to have, like when you're, when you're on a stage, you know, we have these, all this light coming through the window, right? We, we used um, uh, a kind of combination between, you know, sky, sky panel 360s and, and, you know, S60s, you know, soft with, with um, chimeras and stuff like that and movers, that is so crazy to me, the use of the broken glass, the the bottom of bottles, things like that. Like that, mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, people, when people talk about in-camera effects, they usually don't mean actually putting broken glass in front of the, <laughs> front of the yeah. lens. So, mm-hmm. so first of all, what, what was the shot that you used that broke the um, bottom of the juice bottle for? That was when, anytime you look through the people. So the last, oh, the, the first people. time you saw, okay. yeah, yeah. So in his apartment, when he's, really demented, well, has dementia, and he's looking at Reggie for the first time when he comes to the first time you see Reggie, he's actually through his people. That's the, that's a cutoff. That's the bottom of a, a, Martin, a Martinelli's bottle. We were just looking for different types of glass, and um, we just went, had some, sent a PA to the store. He was like, get us a bunch of bottles. You know, and he came back with his Martinelli's, and we tried it. We camera tested a bunch of, a bunch of glass, and that was the one that worked the best. It was a super wide-angle lens. And that, that glass over the lens. You know, there's one scene in episode six where he is after he shoots um, his foe, the guy that killed Reggie. Uh, I, I guess it's part of making, I guess it's always, it's already been shown, so I can tell. Yeah, the, the, all the episodes yeah. are out and people yeah, know. Yeah. Spoilers yeah, yeah. do trickle out of this show sometimes, yeah, yeah, so it's, it's fine. fine. Yeah, yeah. But the guy who killed his nephew, and I can't think of his name off the top of my head right now, but the guy who killed his nephew, he, she ended up shooting him, you know, but during the time he shot him, he was losing um, the effects of his medication that was clearing his mind. So during that confrontation, he was having an episode, mm. you know, so it was kind of going in and out of clarity and, and dementia. And so in that scene, as he chases him out the door, as the guy's bleeding out and he's chasing him out the door, he has this vision of like almost everyone we've seen, from his past in the hallway. In that particular, in that particular shot, that's literally a, 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 a broken clear filter. Like we just shattered it. Like no like, way. Shattered on the yeah, just shattered on the ground, retaped it, and, and not to bits, you know, just like crap the crap out of it. And then put that in front of the lens. And that's what all that create and then a lot of haze in the in the hallway with like the practical lights, all the tungsten practical lights in the hallway and whatever lighting we put in there, mostly the backlighting was hitting that cracked glass and it was getting that really crazy delusional POV, 
you know, at that time. That's what that was. What do you think that does to the story, to the viewer as they're watching it, by ha- by seeing and kind of experiencing an effect that, you know, maybe you can't replicate in post as as easily. Mm-hmm. And it just has like kind of a, a natural feel to it. Like what what does that say to the viewer when they when they see that and they feel that? I think it sort of just harkens back to sort of old school filmmaking, you know, like Hitchcock and these guys that didn't have a lot of the VFX, um, digital VFX tools that we have today. They would use, you know, miniatures and they would use special effects, you know, in camera. So, you know, Hitchcock would put, if it was a burning, a burning building and he couldn't actually burn a building, he'd put a miniature building on a stick, you know, and put a lens right in front of it and burn the, miniature you know yeah and in the scene so it looked like you know really close it looked like it was a burning building in the scene so things like that using like optical effects miniatures and and um you know all kind of things that people did in, in the in the early days of filmmaking was something that we did we wanted to sort of employ in the story we didn't want there to be like ghosts you know we didn't want like this visual effect of like something appearing in the screen that felt fake you know, we wanted it to be, I think in many ways, when you're dealing with dementia and any kind of mental um, aberration, let's say, um, you know, that connects to the mind, which is is in direct connection to the vision, you know, the way you see things, you know. I think when you look at something with your eyes, that tool, that optical tool, the actual biological optical tool is connected to the mind, right? You know, so that can be you know, along with like a physical stigmatism that can alter your vision. Also a mental break, you know, could also alter your vision. It's like when people take mushrooms or whatever, or yeah. psychotropic drugs, they're, they're, something happened. They're like, I'm seeing things, that I, I'm seeing colors, I'm seeing all kinds of things that I normally wouldn't take in my, in my unaltered mind, you know? So we wanted to sort of, you know, think of the, think of the eye and the biological eye as an, opti- an optical device, and, you know, so it's not, you know, so the, the thing that's, that's skewed is not a digital effect. It's, not, it's an actual optical thing, you know, so we wanted to sort of lean into that. Did you or, or have you had anyone in your life that had suffered from dementia that you sort of learned from? Or did you perhaps maybe even do a little bit of research as to like what may be seen in the mind's eye of these people? No, I didn't, but my the first director, Ramin Barani, did. He had a relative that was suffering, um, had suffered and was suffering dementia not too, you know, not too long ago. Yeah. And so we really talked about his his perception. I hadn't experienced it. And I've experienced other mental illness, you know, in my life with relatives, um, but not particularly this particular sort of mental illness. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then we just sort of was like, what would it feel like just to be, what would it, what's the what's the device to make the audience just completely come into this man's internal world? You know, he's giving so much outwardly in terms of his expression, the way his eyes are moving, and sort of you know, Sam did a great job in terms of just like his reactions and like to the sounds and yeah. that weren't there. <laughs> you know, but I think because we put the actors in the room, that were that he was sort of seeing, he was able to have a much more sort of visceral reaction to them than, oh, there's like a, you know, a bunch of green balls that he has to react to. Yes, yes. You know, for a VFX shot. I think you guys did such a great job of depicting dementia. I mean, I have a good amount of experience with it. Both of my parents suffered from it. Mm. And um, I just feel like you guys kind of nailed it because you, you, you were really balancing between that that fear and confusion and just like the whole, nothing is right. And there's this uncomfort going on. And I think you guys did a really good job. I mean, obviously the performance of Samuel uh, L. Jackson was awesome. Anger too, right? Angry, yes. Anger because they lose their control. Exactly. It's like every Mm -hmm. emotion just kind of gets thrown in and on top of this confusion. And I think Part of something that I noticed that you did is you also had a lot of shots where the camera was really close to his face, wide angle lens. And it was like, it was almost like his world was kind of like coming down on him a little bit. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that technique did and and why it was used? That was another device 
I think what we tried to do is create a POV for him, um, you know, for his state, but also um, when we when were looking at him, we want to separate, we want to separate when he was sort of clear, hmm. you know, to the world when he's interacting with another person, like Robin per se, or, or whoever. And when he's not, we use this uh, 50 millimeter, it's a, it's a really uh, vintage 50 millimeter ingenue lens that was used for surveillance photography. Mm. Uh, it's like a 0.9 aperture, super, super, super shallow, you know, low light uh, lens that Camtech in Los Angeles has. I think, I don't know how many people have them. There's only one lens. They don't have like, it's not like a set of lenses. No they way. Have one focal, yeah, they have one focal length, you know? So that was one of our special. We had like- That Anjanu 50 is one for, what? I mean, they didn't have a set. Maybe there was a, a set of those somewhere, but they're like probably from the, you know, fifth, I don't know what, they're, they're vintage. Oh, here it is. Anjanu, but Anjanu, Anjanu, I can't say it. Anjanu 50 millimeter 0.9. Look at that. Yeah. Oh, I'll, I'll put this so, in, um, I'll put this in the show notes so you guys can check it out. Oh my God. Yes, this is, um, oh, how cool is this? So, all right. So mm -hmm. that was the lens you were using for that kind of surveillance look you're saying. Yeah, but listen, when you get close to it and you go really shallow, there's no lens. I don't know a 0.9, you know, lens. Yeah. It might like probably some, space, you know, you know, like some type of Hubble's telescope lens is that, is that fast. So, you know, when you go that close, you know, also has a very, you can get very close and still be in focus. The critical focus is pretty close. So when you get that close and it's wide open, everything, including like probably up until the front of his ears goes out of focus. So it's really subjective. You really get inside of the person's head. It's like the whole world falls off in this strange painterly way where it just feels like, mm -hmm. and you're like, oh, now this guy is sucked into his own head. You know, that's just the way we thought about it. We were just, you know, we had, like I said, we had three different sets of lenses and we thought about it and prepped tremendously around like which lenses we would use for what times, not just time, not just, uh, you know, which eras, but also what state of being he's in. If you notice in the first, in the sixth episode, the last scene when he's in Rob, when Robin in the sort of um, sanctuary or insane, whatever that asylum yeah. scene. Yeah. That's, that's the, those are the Falcons, which were the lenses we used in the first episode. Yeah. Let's talk about, cause I know there's three sets of lenses used in the series. Let's mm -hmm. talk about the lenses that you chose, why you chose them. Um, mm -hmm. Talk to me about that. What were the three different sets that you used? So we used the Cantec Falcons. That was a, the first lenses we used. Yeah. Then we used uh, uh, a, a set of Tokina Vistas, mm. which were sort of newer Japanese lenses that are that had customly detuned at uh, Camtech. One of the things that Camtech is really great at is that they'll customize lenses for you. You know, for cinematography, they have a, some of the most crazy array of lenses, vintage glass, glasses that glass that's hard to find, rehouse glass of, of, of lenses. You have nineteen thirties. Uh, canoptic lenses from France, you know, things like that that you won't find. You know, and I test, they gave me a, a, a great amount of them to camera test, you know, when I was going through this process with the first director. So, and we were just looking for, you know, for a look, I think the Falcons I've used many times before. So I knew they were a little cooler, a little starker, a little more sharp, mm -hmm. you know. So I wanted to use that when he was more demented. You know, they don't have a lot of, like the, the blacks kind of fall off. It's really, they're dark. You know, they don't have a lot of latitude, as, as much latitude as, you know, maybe the Vistas would have. Mm. <laughs> Excuse me. And so we use those to kind of make, make the environment cold and, and um, a, little, a little more intense. They're a little, they're a little, they're kind of, they're a tiny bit edgier, those lenses. Yeah. You know, they're not as beautiful, objectively beautiful. Yeah, yeah, and you're, and you're using them more kind of at the beginning of the series, I guess, when when the very first episode, yeah, you never use anything else. Oh, it's never, so never nowhere else in that even nowhere. okay, because there are times yeah. when and it kind of slips. End. Okay, because there are times where he kind of slips back into. Yeah, sometimes okay. we did that. Not that I remember. Sometimes we did go back to that glass if it was an extended scene. We did that, but if he was just slipping in for a moment, we probably went to that fifty, um, ingenue lens. Okay. Or we went to a diopter. Yeah. You know, but if we knew that he was, as he gradually slipped, like he did 
in the last episode, he went right back into full dementia. We went back to the Falcon lenses at the beginning of the, uh, of the series. And even, um, but so, so the philosophy was the Falcons are a little prettier, you know, um, the Takinas are a little prettier, um, classically. I detuned them, so I made them even softer than what they would normally be. Um, and they're warmer. And so the, the idea for that was when, when Robin came into his life, even lighting-wise, we opened the windows more. The direct, the, the sun rays would be more direct, less diffuse. I think in the first episode, everything kind of looks a little more overcast. Yep. You know, in the, in the apartment, it's cold, it's cooler, it's kind of overcast, it's rainy at times. All that's on the stage, so we're creating all that rain, you know? We're creating all that overcast sky, you know? Um, and, you know, even the sodium vapors that are outside the windows and some of the, the mercury vapor lamps that are outside the windows, that's all what we were doing all that. Yeah. Um, but we had mover, we had like, we had a combination of sort of soft lights, which were like Ari, like Ari 360s and, and um, some S60s and um, movers, which were able to create harder shafts of light. So when Robin came into his world, when she started cleaning up the apartment, you know, the windows got, the, the you know, the shades came open and Shaktier uh, rays of light came in. And even sometimes we, even would, we would warm the lens even more by putting chocolate filters on at times when it was really a warm moment. And we kind of stuck to that. So if, if our if the other DP who was alternating with me used the chocolate, you know, for a period of time, I would I would watch the dailies. I'd be like, okay, I'm gonna use the chocolate and continue this for the for my for the beginning of this third episode or whatever. And so to continue that vibe. And then, you know, my you know, my choice at the end was to go back to the Falcons in that scene when he's when she's hugging him and she's crying, he's in dementia. Yeah. To just bring it. I don't know if anybody noticed it. <laughs> well, I think it's, I mean, not only do we kind of slip in and out of, I guess, consciousness, I don't really know what else to call it. I guess just kind of normal view of the world mm -hmm. and, and when he is uh, suffering from the dementia, but you also play a lot with different time periods. Like you go into yeah. the thirties and the seventies and the eighties and mm -hmm. present day. Um, how are you using these lenses to help support the different decades that you're filming in? You know, the decades were more, I think we used, we used Takinas for the past, mostly for the, for the, um, the seventies and the thirties. I think we went heavier on the chocolates sometimes if it feels like really, really old. Yeah. And, um, we also had different LUTs though. So it was less for that with, it was less of a lens issue than it was a lookup table issue. I had a colorist on board before prep. Mm. So is that rare? I was, I'm not sure. I, I don't think so. It shouldn't be at least. Yeah. Sometimes in television, you know, this is not typical television, right? Things are changing in, in what we're calling television. Streaming is much more cinematic. The budgets are higher. They shoot at more of a, a, a feature film pace mm. than what maybe like an ABC show or a CBS show or one of the network television shows may shoot at. You know, so you're you're able to do things. Um, I would never get a camera test on a network TV show. It's you know, so I had three three days of camera testing, <laughs> you know, on this show. That's you know, so would, wild to with me. the actors, you know. So, you know, our situation. So, I would have I talked to my colorist, and I was like, "Listen," and I gave him references. One of our references for the for the um, for the thirties. There's a lot of references for the thirties, but it was like um, one of them was um, Terrence Malick. Uh, now I maybe forget the film. You know, what I'm talking Days of Heaven. Uh, so Days of Heaven was a reference for for some of the 30s stuff. Um, some of the 80s stuff, we had a lot of like, on 70s stuff, we had a lot of Gordon Parks sort of photography from that era mm. um, was a reference. Uh, and some of the sort of Kodachrome, old Kodachrome film that was used a lot in the 70s. And, yep. and uh, yeah, a lot of chrome in general, like chrome film. Um, so, you know, we were... I would give them, I just give my colors a, a ton of references and I'd be like, these are the three things. These are modern era. There's a 1930s and there's a 1970s. And he, he came up with three LUTs, you know, and obviously when he finished it, that those things were altered. But what we were seeing on monitor as we were shooting were those looks. Yeah. You know, so I can kind of light to them. I can talk to, um, you know, costume design about color palette. We would, so we tested all those looks with the pr perspective costumes that Sam was going to wear. Or Robin was going to wear. 
Yep. We have backdrops that were the color of the apartment, the green on the apartment wall, or the or the seventies look of the apartment, which is more of a neutral gray. You know, and we put these co- people in the costumes. You know, you know, and in in those backdrops with tungsten light, with daylight, and harder light, soft light, and these different lenses and these different lookup tables, and we got a chance to look at, you know, broken glass, diopters. So we got a chance to Ramin, the first director, who was really sort of the architect of the with me of, of the look because he was there first. Um, got a chance to say he was very clear, like we need to come up with rules. Let and he wanted to see the split doctor, and if it, if it didn't work, he wouldn't we wouldn't use it. Yeah, you know he had to like approve that. So that might have been my idea, but he was like let me let's see it. He wasn't going to just say, oh yeah, Sean put this, you know. Well, yeah, because that, that's a test. that's a big decision. Like you're, it's a big decision. You're real. <laughs> once you once you bake in that look, you are. Yeah. That's it. We're in it. We're in it. You know what I mean? So all that <laughs> stuff was really clear. It was never like a let's try this on the day. You know what I mean? It was like we camera tested all that stuff and made decisions, and we knew how much was it, was it split out to number one or number two, or was it two and, or on top of each other? Was that broken glass thing? Was that going to look like? Yeah, you know, you know, the bottle we did in the camera test. You know, what's that going to look like? You know, it wasn't like a, you know, so it was all very much. We had a luxury of um, being able to do that. I want to talk to you about your experience shooting Day for Night in episode three. Um, We talked about Day for Night a few times on the show, but it's not something Mm -hmm. we 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 dig into nearly enough Mm -hmm. because. It's I mean, people are doing it and there's quite mm-hmm. a skill to it. And um, I'm always fascinated with how people do it in such a realistic way. And I think you did such a great job where, mm-hmm. I mean, I knew my I, my producer, Connor, was like, there's a day for night in here that you need to talk about. And I'm like, all right, where is it? Because, I mean, the mm-hmm. fact that I couldn't really tell is a mm-hmm. testament to how well you did it. So mm-hmm. explain to us the day for night. I'm sure scene. you look really closely. <laughs> well, well, that's what but I wanted to a, talk about. I kind of like... Yeah. Just talk to me, I guess, about it's episode three. Isn't it the opening scene mm-hmm. in episode three? It's the scene, yeah. I think when they go, it's um when Koi Dog wakes him up. Yeah. And he's like, Oh no, I don't have these dreams anymore. What are you doing here? I don't, I'm fixed, you know, yes. whatever. And they walk, then he, then he becomes like in shot. He comes from Sam Jackson to the little boy. Yep. And then they walk to the well. To the well. Okay, yes. Yeah. So when they get to the well, we shot the beginning of that well, that whole well scene in daytime. You know? So I guess and my we question the beginning, is, we shot the journey at night. So we had to go, we, we couldn't, it was just a scheduling issue Okay, where we couldn't, we had to, to make our day, we had to get that scene during the day. So we had planned that. We knew that going in. It wasn't like the day we showed up, they're like, oh, we got to do this day for night. Yeah. So we knew that going in. So our strategy, even on the, on the location scout, of, and obviously we built the well in those woods. It wasn't like there was a well there, you know? Yeah. So our strategy going in was like, Okay, we need super deep cover woods, you know, so tons of tree cover to at least give us as much shadow from the trees as humanly possible, right? And then we have fly swatters, which are cranes with, you know, big, you know, they call them a fly swatter. You have this crane with like a big diffusion on it looks like a, a fly swatter. Yep, yep. So we have these, so we have solids. So probably like four or five of those, maybe four of those in the air covering the sky over the woods, blocking the sun. Yep. Right. And then, you know, now I'm lighting with under those blacks, I'm creating my own sort of moon in the woods, mm. you know, and then I'm using a lot of the colorists because I'm never going to get it down. I'm at the lowest ISO. I'm, I'm stopped down a little bit, and, but I have to compensate from stopping down by hitting the characters with something. Cause if they, if I stop down, they're going to get dark. Yep. So I'm hitting them with something to bring them up while the environment goes down. You know, it's kind of technically how you do it. And then you, you know, the our DIT is also kind of crushing and making it more blue, you know, and then the colorist comes in and does his job to, to match it from the nighttime. But that's kind of the angle. We ain't the, the the whole the whole desire is sort of bring the sky as much down as humanly possible, stop down as much as possible for the environmental life, and then bring in light strong enough to sort of bring the characters back up in a way that doesn't look that soft and not direction. You know? So are you are you actually stopping down or are you just NDing the hell out of that lens? Because I mean, oh, the, yeah. the f- it's one, it's one, it's one of the other. Yeah. Okay. Cause I'm so guessing when you're stopping down like that, if you're not going to use ND, you're going mm-hmm. to kind of lose your, or affect your depth of field 
in a yeah, way yeah, that you yeah. might not want. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you're right. It, it, depending on what I want that to feel wise, I will probably indeed. I don't know what I do in the moment, but more than likely knowing me, I, I usually like to be at like a two eight. Yep. On the, on the lens, 284. I think it's a nice sweet spot for me. Yep. For depth of field, especially with the LF sensor, it's so large. I think people like to go wide open all the time. A lot of people, for some reason, I don't understand that personally. Why? I just because I think depth of field is a is a is a narrative and aesthetic choice. I don't think it's you don't use it. You don't use it for every shot. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Yep. Depth of field. If I want to, there are times you need long depth of field because that's what the the scene needs. So if I'm in f8, I'm making that choice because. I don't want the actor to be fully out of focus because I want the, the, the audience's eye to go to him sooner. So I don't have to be this crazy rack. A crazy rack from one actor to the next is also a dramatic convention. Yeah. It's not just, you know what I mean? So if I'm at F8, you know, and I want a smaller rack, it just brings the audience to that person. That person can already see them, number one, and make them out primarily. So it's a softer rack. It's not like this dramatic, like, you know what I mean? So... You know, all, all things that we do and all choices that we make are for, for story. And if it's only aesthetic, then that's sort of, for me, that's a bit, I don't know. I, don't know do that. I think the style, you know, I don't know, maybe eight, 10 years ago or so, there, there was definitely a push to have just everything as soft as possible back there. It's going to make it beautiful. It's going to make it more cinematic. Soft, soft, soft. I mean, I know I use it most of the time when I'm using it is because What's in the background? I really don't want to see. <laughs> it's like I well, kind of I, I don't have a great set. I don't have that much yeah, to work with, and I got to stop exactly. it. Exactly. But sometimes that's it too. I mean, luckily we have beautiful sets. Yes, you did. Beautiful environments. But I think I do think um, people because film stocks were very slow. You know, I think especially like if you look at some of the old New York style films when they were shooting on location, I think people were shooting wide open out of necessity. So I think our memory of seeing things that are cinematic is that they're out of focus, is that they're child of the field, not because it was a choice, but because we had a 250D stock. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And you're in somebody's house and you don't have a, that that particular budget or that particular show didn't have lifts outside with, you know, with, you know, 18Ks but coming through the window, you know? So they were just doing what they had to do. So but I do think that the the, the, the notion that to make digital cinematic that it has to be shallow comes from this, you know, slow stock time period. Mm. You know, when we were doing those indie films that were, you know, Marathon Man or like, you know, those kind of films where they were just sort of on location, they were, they were shallow because they had to be. Yeah. You know, it wasn't a choice necessarily. Was, Did you ever you see know. the show um, Plot Against America? I think it was HBO. It shot by Mar- Martin Algren. And we had him on. We had him on the show a little while back. Are you familiar with that show? Have you? Did you see it? It was just a one season. Called? The plot against America. I bring mm. it up because it, that show is like basically stopped down the whole time. Like everything is in focus. And we talked a lot about that stylistic choice. And it really is. It's just such a jarring difference when everything is in focus all the time. Like you don't realize mm. how little you see that until you see it, yeah. and you're like, "What the yeah. hell am I looking at?" It was a really interesting approach. And if you have any interest in that at all, and certainly I'm sure you do, it's worth checking out a couple episodes because it's it's just interesting to see again? how we did that. The Plot Against America. The plot against America. I'll check it out. Yeah. You know, it, what was that film that came out a few years ago about the insane queen in England? Oh. And it was that super like eight millimeter lens all the time and everything was super focused and it made it look mad. Oh my God. And they were always low angle on the, you know what I'm talking about. I do. What is the name of that? Um, I'm searching insane. Was it insane queen? <laughs> insane queen <laughs> movie is what I'm searching for. Um, all right, I'm sure somebody right now is listening, and they know, and they're yeah. screaming at their at their uh, whatever yeah, yeah. they're listening to. On all right, that, so- that was a use of that same sort of thing, and obviously, you know, back in the you know, you know, back in the days, they used that a lot. You know, they used you know depth of field. They would, they would even use they would even use optical effects to give you. Um, you know, long depth of field. You know, it's a, it's a device. Yeah. You know? I want to talk about your approach to Moonlight. Um, mm-hmm. just the, the way that you depict it. And I know we were just talking about your day for night. You had to create a moon. Mm-hmm. What is your philosophy on, you know, shooting at nighttime exteriors and creating moonlight? How do you do it? 
I don't like moonlight to be blue. Mm-hmm. I think that's a cliche. You know, so I like my moonlight to be neutral. So white, you know, and um, I, when, we, when I talk to my colorist about it, I like, I want it to be an off, like a gray, if that makes sense. I don't know how you can, I mean, gray is a color. Yeah. I guess it's like a white, blue. I don't know. It's not blue, but it's like something, because I think psychologically, I think in movies, you always see blue somehow for some reason, but in real life, there's no blue moon. You're not, yeah. You're not blue skin. You're outside. <laughs> it's a white source. You know what I mean? And I like the moon, like to be, to be, to be, um, I like the moon, like to be hard mm. because in real life, the moon is hard. If you look at moonlight, the shadows are always really sharp, not like, it's not diffuse because it's a small source, you know. It's just like smaller source that is bouncing off the sun, so it gives a smaller, um, it gets a sharper um, shadow. The one thing I thought about, the one thing I had to my advantage for a lot of the nighttime scenes that I shot is that they was in the nineteen thirties, and in the nineteen thirties, you know, I was talking to the directors and the production designers, and I was like, people in those times didn't have. Um, trash collectors in the same way that we have trash collectors, you know, people would burn their trash, hmm. you know, and people use obviously lanterns and there was some electricity, but if not in rural, in rural areas, it would be rare. The one thing that might have electrical light would be like the fire truck, you know, something that the city owned, but few people in their homes in like the poor, you know, Mississippi in the 1930s would have electricity. And so there's a lot of fire outside, you know, smoke and fire and burning. I know if you go to, if you go to like um, Cuba or Jamaica or like, uh, you know, wherever, Venezuela or West Africa, even today, you'll see like, you always see these plumes of smoke when you're traveling the countryside because people are burning their trash, you know, because they don't have the same, yeah, the same services. So I use that sort of as a nighttime device that was very smoky all the time and hazy. It's always like those fires burning all the time. There was like, you know, low-hanging cloud. So that helped me a lot, sort of. Uh, so whatever lights I had in the sky on condors or... And I used a kind of a combination of, of moonlight. I had lights on condors, like 100-foot or 80-foot condors. Usually like two 360s and movers. And then I had um, what they call a night light, which is like one of those big-ass trucks that comes and has a big ass crane. It's a big ass truck. Like it looks like an 18 wheeler that comes and has a big ass crane and with the lights built in it. And it's like nine big bay lights or 15 or whatever you order, the size yeah. you order. And then they can turn them down, they can move them, they can do all that. So it's usually like the main big source. It's like a huge source of light that's way out in the distance. Yeah. That's kind of light in the sky and light in the haze as a big back kind of thing. And then yeah, yeah. For the characters, there's usually a condor nearby. But I also had um, uh, lights on what's called what are called petty bones. What are, are those? Petty bones are like kind of movable. Like they have like like drivable cranes. They're like shorter armed cranes um, that you can drive through dirt and sand and you know. And so those also had lights, so I can get because we were in the dirt in the middle of the back. We built that town in 1930s in the middle of a nowhere like a farm basically where were you we were outside of atlanta in georgia oh wow you know but it was like a middle of nowhere swamp basically and so we sort of we had petty bones i can drive around so i needed a key light to move quickly i can drive a petty bone around instead of having the condor you can't really move a condor but the petty bones i can have move around so i had a lot of or if i needed lights if i need the trees to be illuminated a little more that's what the movers were for you know, so I just go turn the movers yeah. over there and light the trees a little more, dim them down. Like so, it was a lot of ways to for me to sort of keep. I had a lot of function. I had a lot of different options in terms of getting both key lights, backlights on small on fog, moonlights. I, I made, gave myself a lot, <laughs> a lot of options. Yeah. yeah, it's it sounds like you didn't. It sounds like um, I like the way that you approached moonlight in that time period like that's that's really smart that's just thinking favorite, about i'll be honest with you that's my favorite accomplishment of the whole series really i love the way that moonlight looks especially yeah. when he walked him to the well you know that backlight haze and that moonlight i was so happy with that and i and i 
I rarely see nighttime scenes, even in movies I'm watching that I like. Yeah. I'm always like, what is that crazy looking light coming out of the forest from? Like, what is that? Like, how's that real? Like, what, how would the moon be a shaft of light? <laughs> I'm always like, that's the direction of tungsten. How, you know? Yeah. So I'm always, always wondering how that, so I've always liked, but we really worked hard on thinking about it. And I had a great gaffer, a gaffer, sorry. Uh, Justin Dixon out of LA. He's an amazing, like, savant. That was actually Justin. Did Justin like that? He didn't like that particularly, but he designed the lighting for that. He wasn't there that day. He had to move on to a different, different thing that he was doing. Um, um, but yeah, yeah, it's it's a beautiful yeah. scene, and it really does stand it. out. And um, mm-hmm. and you're right. It's like moonlight really doesn't create shafts of light like you're at like like event lighting. It's it um, you you know that the mu- the moonlight is there when it hits something when it actually like hits it. shoulders or a head or something. That's it. Yeah, that's when it becomes visible, you know. And so it's interesting, you know. Often, obviously, there's a there's a fine line, right? You know, between dark, dark. Like there were no, you would never even see those black people. You know, one of the advantages to the fire scene is that the fire is so bright. So that's the major key light. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because that that is something I wanted to talk about. In episode six, the opening scene is Mm -hmm. this big fire. There's a whole bunch of extras going on. All hell's breaking loose. Mm-hmm. I want to talk to you about that scene, and in particular, just the the, the challenges or things maybe people may not know about mm-hmm. how to effectively film in a fiery environment. I mean, it's not something mm-hmm. that a lot of people get the opportunity to do. Yeah. I mean, luckily, our special effects was an amazing team, and they did a great job. It was completely controllable. It's all It was all gas, you know, coming through, piping, you know, in the house, panther cloth, that is used panther, panther. I mean, sorry, panther felt that's not burnable, and, and if you put you know oils on it, whatever the thing you're burning, it lasts for a long time without burning. Um, huh. So we're able to get a lot of takes using the techniques that they brought to to bear, and you know, and all the internal, like when he was when he goes into the shack as a kid, and then goes into the shack as an adult. That's all on stage, you know. So there's no real fire there. Those are all like mix bulbs. Yep, creating yep. fire gags elements for the for the VFX, you know, and then they add the fire, you know, in the in, in an internal world. But the external world was actual fire in the building, you know, via gas and piping, you know, so it yep. wasn't actual house wasn't burning down. And the panther cloth to keep it from actual burning, the, the wood from actually burning. Um, but you know, it was also supposed to be a tar paper shack, you know, so the panther cloth was black, it kind of worked for that. Yeah. You know, um, so so, that, let, so yeah. let, let's just talk, break it down into two different sections. I want to talk about the interior in the fire mm-hmm. scene, mm-hmm. how you handled that. And no, you were saying mm-hmm. it's a combination of visual effects and things that you guys have in place in order to help mm-hmm. support the look. Let's start there. Like what, what are we actually seeing um, in, in the interior of that shack when it's burning down? What is actually there? You know, lighting and creating the, I guess, the essence of the fire. Yeah, I mean, you have a bunch of like mixed bulbs on bo- on boards. You have Asteras, probably. Uh, I think I remember like some Asteras on some of this. Although all the architecture that you saw burning was re- was a built environment on stage. Mm-hmm. So the, the everything that went down, you know, the all that happened physically with yep. some people, you know, like came down, you know, blah, blah. but all the light, all the effect of the lighting on the walls, you know, the the, the illusion of light was what we created. Through lighting. Yep. So yeah, so like it'd be mixed bulbs on a piece of furniture or or um stairs on a, on a beam, you know, they have these fire gaps that you can program, you know. And then you just look at you kind of look at with the special effects person and the VFX person, you're gonna look at the best pattern for them and see what works best on the walls and sort of test it out. And yeah. I mean it's gotta process. be such an intricate art to do that the right way. Um, yeah. And I think you guys. Yeah, did no, a great no, job. you know, it's really one of those things where, you, you know, one of the good things we had time, you know, so that that set, that internal set might have been a whole day of shooting, you know, I don't know, yeah, at least a full half day, but probably a whole day, you know. So it's like you're just lighting it and looking at it and thinking about it with the special effects supervisor, I mean, VFX supervisor and the special effects team, and um, yeah. So, so now let's go outside when we're exterior, the house is actually Mm -hmm. burning. It is on set. It's not only burning and providing heat. um, Mm -hmm. So there's safety concerns there, but also it's a major light source that you just have to work with. 
So yeah. talk to us about that. Well, that light source is controllable. So I can tell them, you know, take the fire down. If the, if the camera is not looking at the fire, I can actually use the fire as a light source. So if I'm turning towards my subjects, looking at the fire, yeah, I can say, okay, come down that fire 25%. You know, physically. <laughs> it's wild, like a gas fireplace in your <laughs> house. Like, they're literally like, standing down. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, that's perfect. You know, and then I'm looking at it. Obviously, I have it full blaze, but or blaze enough to camera. But when I'm turning my people, I'm able to diffuse it. I'm able to turn it down. I'm able to do use it literally as a source of the flicker's real. You know, it's actual flame. You know, it's, the warmth of it is really warm. I probably shot that at 5600 on the ca- on the camera to really warm it up. Yeah. You know, I like things to be warm, warm. I've been shooting a lot. Of time. I think there's been a trend, especially for darker skin actors. There's been a trend um, uh, for a while that was probably started primarily with like Malik Saeed and some of my mentors, some of black cinematographers like Malik Saeed and Arthur Jaffa. Malik Saeed did a movie called Belly. And um, he also did uh, Clockers for Spike Lee. I think he was the youngest DP ever to do a Hollywood movie back then. Like no way. Oh my God. Um, and then uh, Arthur Jaffa did Crooklyn for Spike Lee and, and uh, another movie called Dawes of the Dust. And then Bradford Young, who's, they all came out of the same sort of school we all mentored. And they're all friends, we're all friends, right? And so there was a trend for a time, like Bradford did a movie called Mother of George, where the skin was like super indigo. And now, that was an aesthetic choice um, that I don't want to get into a whole tirade about it, but yeah, you know, yeah. it goes, there's a Nigerian family, there's a, a religion called the Yoruba religion in Nigeria, and, and, and indigo and gold are primary colors in that religion. So they used a lot of that. But then a lot of people became influenced like that, by that, like Moonlight was. Yes. Usually influenced by Mother of George in terms of using blue, oily skin and blue on, on, on darker skin tones. But as I remember darker skin tones growing up as a darker person, I remember if I'm from the Bronx, right? Originally Bronx area. And I remember, and I'm of a certain age, certain vintage age, you know, but I remember when there weren't, <laughs> <laughs> I remember when there weren't no LED lights, you know, it was all like oh, I real do too. Sodium. <laughs> yeah, so at night it was a real, it was all real sodium vapor or mercury vapor. So I just remember, especially at night, I remember black skins or darker skins being really warm, sodium, gold in that light, you know, as a as a memory. And so that's sort of my. So I've been using that a lot more in terms, of, even in you know daylight situations. I warm. I've been warming up darker skins in a way, making you know, in a complex way. Cause that's kind of, that was kind of abandoned because it became cliche because it was too light and warm. Hmm. But if you bring it down and bring less light to white skin and then make it not just warm, but also golden, it's really beautiful. And I'm sort of attached. And I don't know how long I'll do that, but I've been attached to that for a while and sort of against trend, you know? Oh my God. I'm trying the, there's another film that that just made me think about. Um, oh my God. What's it called? Big, uh, big bottom. Oh my God. What is it? There's, um, hold on. I got to look through our website. It, hold on. Um, we had the DP on for it. Oh, um, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From a couple mm-hmm. years ago. That was also really warm. Um, and I kind of feel like, like what you're talking about right now is making me think of that film. And at the time when we, when, when, you know, I was watching it and talking to Tobias, the cinematographer, the, at least I don't remember referencing that polar opposite of like how Moonlight was, cooler and bluer but mm-hmm. now that we're talking about it now you're right it, it's using it as a is, i think that was an inflection point it is you know? it's a little bit more yeah. it's more rare than you would think it was mm-hmm. yeah so i've been going real i've been going both you know like if you noticed in Tommy gray it starts very very blue and then it goes warmer you know, and yeah. then it goes back to blue and cold at the end you know and even like there's a scene you know one of my friends i didn't notice it myself i didn't I remember saying I was. I remember saying why I did it on set to the director, but I forgot about the conversation. But another DP friend of mine on Instagram, uh, it's like, um, like literally, like filmed the TV for a particular scene that I shot, and he was like, "See, you see how it was the funerals the first time Reggie you saw Reggie in the casket. If you notice when you go through the house, everything is super warm. Mm. You know, you come into the house, it's super warm." Uh, all the rooms are super tungsten, super warm. And then when you go into the 
the actual casket room is super blue and cold. Mm. You know, and he mentioned on Instagram, he was like, wow, it was, if that would have been warm, I might not have cried when I saw Reggie, that coldness and that emptiness of that room and the fact that that room was cold blue and not warm made me, it made the reality of his death more stark. You know, and I remember we talked about that, you know, with the production designer, with Ramin, and it was like those kind of things, those kind of choices to create contrast because he just, he doesn't know he died, right? They're tricked the whole time and no one told him until he sees it, mm. you know? So it needs to shift in terms of tone, you know? So those kind of things I'm interested in, you know, sometimes they're luck, they're, they're strokes of luck. Sometimes you get a chance to talk about it. Sometimes you don't, it doesn't work, you know? Yeah. But sometimes it does, you know? Well, there, I mean, the whole series is awesome. It's six episodes. They're all available now on Apple TV+. Plus. The Last Days of Ptolemy Gray, such a good show. And you're a blast to talk to. I mean, I can't believe we haven't had you on yet. And I'm like already excited about the next time we have you on. We, you, we, we Please do reach out to us when you're promoting your next project because it'd be a lot of fun to talk to you again. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Where can people go to find out more about you and your work? I have a website. It's Sean Peters, S-H-A-W-N-P-E-T-E-R-S.com. I need to update it more <laughs> often than I do. Um, and then I'm on Instagram. It's Sean uh, PZ. It's S-H-A-W-N-P-E-E-Z-I-E. Sean PZ. Sean PZ on Instagram. We'll put a link to that in the show notes so you guys can check out Sean's work and follow him. Sean, thank you so much for being on. The yeah. show is awesome. Congratulations. Thank and, you. And um, yeah, please come back for your next project. I will do. Thanks, man. All right, I want to thank Sean Peters, the director of photography of The Last Days of Ptolemy Gray, for coming on the show and talking to us all about it. It's a fantastic show, you guys, so please do check it out. It's on Apple TV+. All six episodes are there now. Six episodes. That's easy to get through, and you guys are going to love every second of it. So check it out for yourself on Apple TV+. I also want to thank Connor Crosby. You can find him at ignitionvisuals.com. He is the producer of this show and a whole bunch of work that we do at BC Media Productions. And Dave Siegel over at seagullsound.com. He mixes and masters and makes the show sound so good. Please do check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as YouTube, where you can not only hear the episodes, but see the episodes. And all things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. And if you're interested in what I'm doing with my production company, behind the scenes stuff, all kinds of things like that, everything going on in my world, you can find me on Instagram at Ben Consoli at B-E-N-C-O-N-S-O-L-I. All right. Thank you guys for joining us today. And we will see you next week on another episode of the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. 